Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. In today's episode, we'll be discussing one of the most significant but least talked about trans people of the 20th century, whose many achievements that continue to have a major impact on the lives of trans people worldwide are nearly overshadowed by his eccentric lifestyle. In my head, I refer to him as the Howard Hughes of the trans community. Like the famed film and airplane mogul, This trans man was a rich and extremely successful businessman who used his considerable funds to finance projects that interested him. And, just like Hughes, his often strange behavior would increase over the years until his death in the early 1990s, alone, a fugitive from the law, and living in the rapidly deteriorating remains of the palace he'd built for himself at the height of his fortunes in Mexico. Before we can begin our tale of fortune, philanthropy, drugs, and dream interpretation, I want to highlight the works of doctors Aaron DeVore and Nicholas Matei, who have worked diligently for years to document the life of this episode's subject. Aaron DeVore heads the Transgender Archives at the University of Victoria, whose website you should really check out, and through which is organized the Trans History Conference, an absolute must-see for those of us with a taste for trans history. You can find out more about their work as well as check out the other sources I used to put this episode together through the links provided in the show notes. So, join us as OFTV takes a look at the strange life of the man who almost single-handedly forged modern trans healthcare. Reed Erickson. Reed Erickson was born on October 17, 1917, in El Paso, Texas. Reed's mother, Ruth, came from a large German-Jewish family, and his German-born father, Robert, who may or may not have also been Jewish, was a successful businessman who spoke seven languages fluently. Reed also had a sister named Sylvia. Reed spent much of his early years in the Olney neighborhood of Philadelphia, where he attended and graduated from the Philadelphia High School for Girls in the 1930s. In high school, Reed found a group of young lesbians and began using Eric as a nickname around then. From 1936 to 1940, Reed attended Temple University. During this time in 1938, Reed's mother died. By 1940, his father packed up the family and the family business, Schoenkel Products, Company, Inc., and Schoenkel Lead Corporation, and moved them all to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. In Baton Rouge, Reed worked in the family business and attended Louisiana State University, where, in 1946, he became the first female graduate from LSU's School of Mechanical Engineering. It was in this period that Reed would meet Anne, the name Aaron DeVore has assigned to the woman who wishes to remain private. 
who came from a working-class New York Jewish background. A red diaper baby, Anne's family had a strong investment in leftist activism, and through her outspoken political personality, Reed quickly became interested in social justice. They were lovers, and after Reed graduated from LSU, together they moved back to Philadelphia, where Reed looked for work as one of the only female mechanical engineers at the time. But work was hard to find for someone who was supposedly a woman in the mechanical engineering business. The war was over, and with it went the wartime permissiveness that allowed many women to enter jobs previously considered to be men's work. The boys had come home from war and brought with them an increasing sense of political paranoia about communism and fascism, culminating in what's now known as the Red Scare. Reed lost his job in Philadelphia after refusing to fire a female employee suspected of being a communist. Reed, with Anne at his side providing political gusto, was not going to fire anybody for being a commie. So they fired him. Reed and Anne continued to be politically active in the 1940s, including volunteering for the Wallace presidential campaign of 1948. As the 1950s rolled around, Reed and Anne returned to Baton Rouge along with their Siamese cat, Sappho, so that Reed could take a job in the family business. He also opened up his own business making stadium seating called Southern Seating. Shortly after arriving in Baton Rouge, Reed would make the first of many eccentric decisions in his life. He took a leopard kitten as a pet and named him Henry. Henry would live with Reed for the next two decades, the two of them becoming inseparable. Reed even took him in planes on business trips. According to DeVore, Henry also made local news when he wandered around upper-class Baton Rouge neighborhoods. By the 1950s, Reed was dressing like a man with, according to DeVore, quote, short hair, tailored clothes, and no makeup, apparently cross-dressing more when traveling outside Baton Rouge, end quote. By the end of the decade, Reed would be taking testosterone, though I'm unclear where exactly he gained access to it, and he claimed to have had surgeries in Casablanca and Tijuana. In a small footnote in one of Aaron DeVore and Nicholas Matei's papers on Erickson, they point out that Erickson underwent chest surgery in Tijuana in 1957 or 1958. He also underwent further surgeries in New York and Baltimore in 1965. His medical records do not indicate that any surgeries took place in Casablanca. As the 1950s ended, Reed and Anne were living openly in a lesbian relationship and mostly the people around them did not seem to give them any grief about it. Remember that this is during a time when both homosexuality and transsexuality were illegal and considered mental illnesses, often treated in mental hospitals using electroshock therapy. A large part of why Reed's obviously queer relationship and slow transition into Reed were accepted was because Reed was a manager and part of the owning family of a major business. His class privilege allowed him both the eccentricity of owning a leopard as a pet and the ability to live openly as a transitioning man in a relationship with a woman. The 1950s had seen the first extremely public medical transition of a transsexual in America, Christine Jorgensen, who we'll discuss in a future episode eventually. 
Christine's transition in the early 1950s undoubtedly had an impact on Reed's decision to transition just a few years later. In 1962, Reed's father Robert died, leaving the business to Reed and his sister Sylvia. Together, they would run the companies quite successfully for the rest of the decade before selling them to Aero Electronics in 1969 for, you know, a few million dollars. Reed's business acumen grew during this time, and he made great investments in oil-rich real estate, building a fortune that would eventually grow to over $40 million. At some point in here, it's not entirely clear when or why, Reed and Anne broke up. As many of us know firsthand, keeping a relationship together through a transition is difficult in the best of circumstances. In 1963, Reed became a patient of groundbreaking physician Dr. Harry Benjamin, basically the only doctor in the game in the U.S. at the time. The two of them shared a vision of medical, social, and educational progress for transsexual people, and within a year, Reed would found the Erickson Educational Foundation, or the EEF, in order to use his vast knowledge to fund the work of Benjamin and others working on the social, legal, medical, and psychiatric progress for transsexual people around the world. Let's pause here and discuss the EEF for a moment. I cannot list all of the EEF's massive accomplishments over their 20-year tenure. If you'd like an in-depth look at just how influential the EEF was, check out Aaron DeVore and Nicholas Matei's article, A Better World, which I link to in the show notes. But to summarize, the EEF was funded entirely by Reed Erickson's personal fortune in order to funnel money into three main areas the study and social improvement of transsexuals, homosexual rights, and the emerging New Age movement. The EEF funded nearly every early researcher and medical provider of trans healthcare in the U.S. for 20 years, including Harry Benjamin and John Money, and provided seed money for the first gender identity clinics to open up, While the phrase gender identity clinic might now cause many of us to recoil in horror, you have to remember that before they existed, there was no trans healthcare at all. Though they later became oppressive gatekeeping institutions that are more damaging to trans people than helpful, at the time, this was an incredibly radical step forward. By the 1970s, though, The EEF would acknowledge that the clinics weren't enough, that they were purposefully turning people away who were less respectable because of the tenuous nature of their funding and the possibility that lawsuits and bad publicity could end all legitimacy for trans healthcare as a whole. Their funding also covered meetings and international symposiums on gender identity, the first of their kinds. Here's who I believe to be Reed Erickson introducing Dr. John Money at an EEF meeting in 1971 at the Sheraton Charles Hotel in New Orleans. As far as the, uh, you know, from the um, uh, sheets I sent around, we, when uh, Dr. Money and Dr. Markland and I had first uh, thought up the possibility of such a meeting, uh, it seemed to us, and then was reinforced by uh, correspondence with a number of you, that the uh, agenda be fairly 
open-ended and not uh, too structured. They also funded much of early gay and lesbian activism in the U.S., which we'll discuss later, as well as spiritual and New Age projects, including A Course in Miracles, which is apparently one of the most popular New Age books of all time. And they also funded John Lilly's Dolphin Communication Research. Reed was an incredibly private person, and so he hired the least private person he could find to be the public face of the organization. Zelda R. Suppley had gained some notoriety in the 1950s as the owner of a nudist colony. There's a very funny clip on YouTube of her appearing on the show What's My Line, in which a panel attempts to guess the occupation of a person by asking yes or no questions. She uses the pseudonym Yolanda Reed on the show. Let's listen to a clip. All right, Mrs. Reed, now if you'll join us over here, as I think you probably know, on the basis of this rather quick look at you, which the panel has had, and the quick look that you've had at the panel, we give them one free guess as to what your line might be, and we always begin the free guesses with Miss Kilgallen. I think Mrs. Reed operates a motel. A motel, Mr. Allen. I think Mrs. Reed makes butterscotch. Miss Francis. I think Mrs. Reed runs a reducing parlor. Mr. Sir. I think she manufactures castanets. No, I'm afraid not. Interesting answers, but none of them right. So we'll let our viewers at home have a further look at Mrs. Reed. At the same time, we'll tell them what her line is. Every time you get a no answer from the panel, why, we uh, rack up $5 here, 10 of these no's, and you have won the game. Mrs. Reed is self-employed. With that, let's begin the general questioning with um, Steve Allen. Hmm. <laughs> this reaction, she must play second base for the Dodgers. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, is there a service of any kind connected with your work? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, might I ever come to you for these services? I might. Uh, it evidently seems that uh, it might. Yeah, you might. Well, that seems to amuse the audience. Would it? Uh, could it ever make me happy? Good. Uh... Are the people that come to you dressed? Uh, uh, uh... <gasps> you might say be dressed at all? <laughs> uh, are they not dressed at all? Hardly they come, I mean, we got such a laugh out of the way they might be dressed that I thought maybe they might not be. <laughs> <laughs> no, but actually not for myself. I think we'd have to give you a yes. Well, that. do you have, uh, Dorothy, I don't think you'd go. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I'd go with her, I tell you that. <laughs> well, do you operate some sort of a nudist colony? Yes. Actually, Mrs. Reed, I think, would accept that general classification, but she prefers the designation a nudist park. 
That's actually what she runs uh, down and in Pennsylvania. Colony is no longer polite. It's a Nudis Park resort. Oh, when you park, it's all right. It's an airport. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, Mrs. Reed, let's see. You did fairly well with the prizes, and may we thank you for being our guest and what part of it. It's nice to meet you. Zelda also bears the distinction of being the first full frontal nude in Playboy magazine, and she appeared in several nudist films throughout the early 1950s. She was a short, sort of dumpy-looking woman with steel-gray hair by the time she took on her role as director of the EEF. And though Reed would have a very direct role in guiding the EEF, most of the day-to-day running of the organization was taken care of by Zelda at their offices in New York, Baton Rouge, Los Angeles, and Ojai, California, Mazatlan, Mexico, Panama City, Panama, and Philadelphia. She provided counseling and referrals for trans people from across the country and across the world who contacted the EEF or arrived at their offices. Many people remember her fondly as having been a great source of support, even at times saving them from suicide. Through the EEF, they produced newsletters and pamphlets primarily on various aspects of transsexualism, the first literature of its kind in the world. And they created a system of referral now used by nearly every trans organization in the entire world by collecting information on competent and sympathetic physicians and other professionals, which they distributed to trans people in need. They also connected trans people to each other as pen pals, helping to form an early sense of community across the nation and even across the world. By the end of the 1960s, An estimated 1,000 people were using hormones in the United States, largely as a result of these efforts. Reed's EEF represents the first large-scale social and medical activism for trans people in the world, and its work continues to affect each and every one of us today. All because one short, blonde trans man happened to be totally loaded. Now that I've told you just a tiny bit about how important the EEF was, let's jump back to 1963 and discuss Reed's personal life in more detail. Reed changed his name this year shortly after becoming Harry Benjamin's patient. He also met and married his first wife, an unnamed entertainer related to U.S. diplomats. But by the next year, the relationship had fizzled and they got a divorce in 1965. That same year, Reed set legal precedent by legally changing his sex in the state of Louisiana. Side note. As Aaron DeVore points out, a marriage certificate for this first marriage hasn't been found, and the fact that his divorce occurred before his legal sex change occurred in May 1965 suggests at the very least that something fishy was going on. Remember, this is a very pre-gay marriage world. Either their marriage was unofficial, or Reed found some way of getting the marriage certificate without discussing his legal sex. Several people, including Harry Benjamin, attest to the marriage being official, though. Unfortunately, this particularly interesting piece of the puzzle remains a tantalizing mystery to history geeks like me. Never one to be single long. In 1964, after his relationship with his first wife had ended, but before their divorce, Reed met a woman who, like Anne before her, would change his life. New Zealander Eileen Ashton was a dancer and escort in New York City. Reed fell head over heels in love with Eileen, 
so much so that by their second or third date, he proposed. They had a small wedding in December 1965, shortly after his divorce from his first wife was finalized. In March of the following year, they held a larger wedding ceremony at St. Mary's Church in Christchurch, New Zealand, organized by his wife's family. They returned together to Baton Rouge following the ceremony and within a few years became parents to two children. Around this time, Reed also discovered drugs. It was the end of the 1960s and flower power was in the air. The open-minded 50-year-old had long been hanging around the fringes from his early politicization at the hands of his leftist lover, Anne, to his close working friendship with nudist Zelda Supley. And when a world of psychedelics was suddenly at his fingertips, Reed indulged. This indulgence would mark the biggest shift in Reed's life ultimately proving to be his undoing, as we'll discuss later. In 1973, the family moved to Mazatlan, Mexico, where Reed had designed and built a home for them that he dubbed the Love Joy Palace Ashram. Remember, it was the 70s. While there, Reed took more and more drugs, and within a year, Eileen divorced him. They would continue living together for the sake of the children until 1979 when Eileen would move to Ojai, California, taking the children with her. In 1981, Reed would follow in order to be closer to the children. Backing up a bit, during his divorce from his second wife, Reed started dating a Mexican woman by the name of Evangelina Trujillo Armendariz, who he met at the Mazatlan Tourist Bureau. Ever the ladies' man, in 1977, they flew to Baton Rouge and got married. There's a great photo of them dancing together if you Google around a bit. Drugs would be a source of constant problems in their relationship, with Reed's behavior becoming increasingly difficult to deal with due to his constant intake of ketamine and cocaine. For those who don't know, Ketamine is an animal tranquilizer that, when administered in humans, has an effect that, to paraphrase James St. James, makes you feel like you're suddenly flouncing about Buckingham Palace. Personally, all it ever made me feel was that I was underwater and needed to throw up, which I did, repeatedly. By 1983, Reed was in trouble with the law and going through his third divorce. In order to fully understand Reed Erickson's final years, we need to back up again. As I say at the beginning of each episode of OFTV, history is my favorite kind of gossip. And so it's worth mentioning that for much of the rest of this episode, we only really have one side of the story to tell. In particular, the memories of W. Dor Leg, who, as we'll see, may have a bit of a biased recollection. Reed's side of the story unfortunately cannot be told, as he remained an incredibly private person until his death in the early 90s. But what we do know of the following is a wild ride. In 1950, Merton Bird and W. Dorleg founded the Knights of the Clock, an early Los Angeles-based homophile organization that works specifically with interracial gay male couples. Around the same time, the better-known Mattachine Society was formed by Harry Hay. In 1952, 
Dale Jennings, a member of the Mattachine Society, was arrested by undercover cops for soliciting, and it started an uproar among gay activists. The events surrounding this brought together members of both the Knights of the Clock and the Mattachine Society to form one in October 1952. As DeVore and Matei write, one takes its name from a famous quote by Thomas Carlyle, a mystic bond of brotherhood that makes all men one. Their stated goals were to aid in the social integration and rehabilitation of the sexual variant. They created one magazine and held academic seminars and so many other things that are important, but which I don't have time to cover. In 1963, one moved into offices at 2256 Venice Boulevard, opening essentially the first gay community center and phone line in the United States. This came after they'd spent a year trying to find a replacement for their previous offices that had been damaged in an earthquake. But shortly after moving in, the building was put up for sale. One panicked and sent out a request for donations to their extensive mailing list. One of the only people to respond? Reed Erickson. W. Dor Legg recalls, the first response was from someone named Reed Erickson. He made numerous phone calls for extended conversation with me. This was in 1963, but went no further at the time. In 1964, Reed created the EEF and within days requested that Legg come to meet him in Baton Rouge. Legg's friends told him not to go, saying, quote, this is just a Southern queen who wants a date for the weekend and was willing to send an airplane ticket, end quote. Here's how Legg describes their first meeting. Quote, I was to change in New Orleans and I got on this ancient flapping plane, which just barely cleared the treetops, flapping on to Baton Rouge from New Orleans. I got to the airport, which was no kind of airport at all. It was just a little shanty, really, with wire fence. Eight or ten people got off. Here on the other side of the wire fence was what looked to me like a blonde high school kid. I said, are you Reed Erickson? And he said, yes. I just said, I was expecting somebody older. And I thought, uh-oh, maybe they were right. And so we went out and got into this very large car with a built-in telephone. Well, those weren't all that common in 1964. So I thought, well, there's money here. During the drive into town, I learned I would be put up at a motel. The room turned out to be a veritable presidential suite. Once seated there, he said, tell me about one. After hours of talk with only an occasional question from him, he said we would now go over to his house to meet his lover. Entering an old-fashioned frame house by the kitchen, we went through rooms with bare floors, southern summer style. Here was what might be a brancusi. There, what might be a Matisse. Now we would meet Henry, his lover. Turning on the lights of a large glassed-in porch revealed what looked to me like a ten-foot leopard. My host went in, and the two proceeded to tumble and roll around with great gusto. I was invited to pat the leopard's head, which I most gingerly did. Back to the motel for a few more questions, then a laconic, I'm very glad you have come. He would return in the morning for more talk. 
Still no inkling as to why I was there. Around noon the next day, he said, We have a small foundation and have been observing your one institute quarterly with interest. Do you have any projects you would like funded? Did we have projects? However, I knew that consulting engineer on the letterhead meant that he was not interested in projects as a category, but a project capable of being presented in detail right then. Fortunately, the best talked over project had been our long-desired bibliography of homosexuality. If this was to be funded by him, I was told I must go back to my board and set up a foundation for which he would pay. When I reported back to one's board, their skepticism may well be imagined. A blonde high school student who wrestled with leopards? Clearly, the heat in the South had got the best of me. After some weeks of their amused dismissal of my wild story, reluctant approval was given to go ahead with the foundation. I flew to New York to complete the details in his beautiful apartment close by the United Nations building. Thus, the bibliography project was then put in motion and eventually completed as a two-volume opus of more than 12,700 entries, by far the largest of its kind even yet in 1993. For the next 20 years, other projects were funded. One day, without any special reason, the scales fell from my eyes and I realized that our benefactor, the small blonde boy, was a female-to-male transsexual, one's first large contributor. The foundation Reed had legs set up was called the Institute for the Study of Human Resources, or ISHR, created in August 1964. The ISHR would funnel Reed's considerable wealth directly into one. The ISHR was set up with similar goals to the EEF, including education, which freed up One Inc. to do lobbying for homosexuality and other political activities. One Inc., ISHR, and the EEF would be deeply entwined for the next 20 years. I'm going to skip over most of what they accomplished, not because it isn't interesting, but because this podcast is getting long in the tooth. By the 1980s, one had begun providing the first gay studies graduate level courses, but their offices on Venice Boulevard were crumbling beneath them. In 1982, Legg met with a real estate agent to purchase what was known as the Millbank Estate. Reed bought the property for one ink, telling the real estate agent, quote, I am buying this property for one. We will show the straight world what we can do, end quote. The price? $1.9 million. For tax reasons, the deed on the property was made out to the EEF. This will prove to be significant in a minute. The property, formerly a country club, had been owned to that point by the Church Universal and Triumphant, a Christian organization. They threatened legal action if the payment was not received on time. So Reed went to his personal bank vault and pulled out a million dollars in South African coins. Devore and Matei write, quote, On February 17th, representatives from the church came to his house in Ojai in two cars and a recreational vehicle, accompanied by security guards and a large dog, to collect the Krugerans. For more than three hours, two of the men counted the gold coins and brought them to other men waiting outside in a camper who weighed them and put them into plastic coin holders. 
When everyone was satisfied that the amount was correct, the people from the church, the security guards, and the dog all went to Wiltshire Boulevard coin dealership, where the coins were delivered and a commemorative photograph was taken. At this time, the deal between Erickson and the church was complete, and the coins were the property of the church. However, the coin dealership would accept only a limited amount of gold per day. So a week passed before all of it had changed hands. At the beginning of that week, gold was selling for $508 an ounce. But by the end of that week, the price had dropped to $368. The church lost a considerable sum of money as a result, and Erickson, who took some pleasure in his business acumen, claimed to have personally driven down the price of gold through this one transaction, end quote. Here is where everything starts to go downhill. The plan had been for Reed to hand over the deed at a gala event on May 1st, 1983. But this was then postponed to June 1st, and then postponed indefinitely by Reed. Several things were happening at once. Reed's personal life had become increasingly driven by drugs, and tensions between gay and trans activism had finally begun to boil over at one ink. Reed's drug problem had spiraled out of control by the 1980s. He was paranoid and a pain in the ass to deal with, and his previous business acumen had more or less evaporated in a cloud of drug-induced forgetfulness. He was arrested several times on drug charges, and the many court appearances affected his relationship to one and also drained his bank accounts. To make matters worse, he was diagnosed with bladder cancer, and the illness would put him on his back for days at a time. Reed wasn't the only one at fault, though. One member, Jim Kepner, placed the blame on W. Dor Legg, saying Legg, quote, went a little ways off his rocker, end quote, because of Reed's refusal to hand over the deed to the Millbank estate. Two weeks before one was supposed to hold their first convocation of grad students at Millbank, and just three weeks after Reed's first drug arrest, one received a letter from Reed. It read, quote, I find I can no longer support one of my longtime favorite projects. If you do not find funding within two weeks from today, I already discussed this with you a week ago, I must sell the property, end quote. Negotiations failed quickly, and by May 1984, Reed was trying to evict one from the Millbank estate, something that could crush one as an organization now without its major funder. They would fight for an entire decade over this property. Files from one went missing, Reed aggressively moved other tenants into the property, and at times he even called in armed guards to lock down the grounds of the estate. Legg claimed that on one occasion he'd been trapped inside the estate when the gates were welded shut, and that on another, Erickson had directed contractors to weld Legg's hands to the gates if he refused to move them, end quote. What makes this particular story about the welding hilarious is that by this time, W. Dor Legg was in his 80s, and Reed was in his 70s. So... Basically, they were two very angry old men screaming at each other. I don't know. I find that image hilarious. Eventually, Reed fled his drug charges and went to live at the now decrepit Lovejoy Palace ashram he'd built decades ago in Mazatlan, Mexico. 
his daughter Monica and ex-wife Eileen would take over the fight for Milbank. In 1992, Reed succumbed to his cancer and died in Mexico. Eventually, the estate was divided in the courts between Monica and One Inc. One would go on to become one of the largest gay archives in the world, and they managed to become a thriving organization again today, albeit without their original benefactor. Those of us who are activists could certainly learn some important lessons about benefactors and philanthropists from a careful study of the fallout between Reed and One Inc. Still, despite how his life ended, it's undeniable that Reed Erickson's influence not only on trans healthcare, but also on gay activism and even New Age movements continues to be felt to this day. And for this, I salute him and his leopard friend Henry. Thank you for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Research for this episode owes largely to the work of Drs. Aaron DeVore and Nicholas Matei, as well as other sources that are credited in the show notes. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever else these podcasts get put up. You can rate and review us on iTunes and tweet at me at MorganMPage on Twitter. If you'd like to contribute, please check out my brand new Patreon page, which you can find via my Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.